0: curious as you watch that just what does that evoke in you like what what response comes to mind like as you see that awe yeah I was gonna say I'm not like not a rhetorical question I'm curious like yeah for me too I think that's certainly one of the responses that I have anything else yeah yeah Purpose, dis, Purpose, design. Yeah. 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 So the, 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 the idea of just sort of just randomness in all of this being like, man, like that alone, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, that alone is, is a faith statement that I would contend is, is more difficult to make than the, than the idea there's a designer and a creator, anything else. Anybody get any kind of sense of like, um, like, um, like humility from it, right? When you see the scale and the the scope, and kind of we as human beings have this, I sense of like, man, things sort of gravitate around us, and then you realize, yeah, we're pretty, you know, pretty small in the whole grand scale of things. And I, the reason I I bring this up is I would contend that this is very much the same response, these two responses of, of uh, awe alongside of humility that, that I think Genesis 1 is intended to evoke in us, right? Humility as we come to recognize that we are not the center of the story, and then awe as we consider all that creation reveals to us, what it teaches us about the nature of the Creator on that topic of humility just this week as the the preaching team you know from all four campuses we gather together weekly and we look at the text, and we talk together and pray together and share ideas and all that sort of thing and 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 there was just this general kind of recognition almost sort of like who are we to even preach this like it's it's so there's so much there and so much that you want to say and so much that you'd love to to dig into and so much that you don't understand and it's 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 humbling, it really is, to, to try to open up Genesis and unpack it together, and, and we all felt that. If you're new here with us today, as you've probably guessed, we are currently in a series that are studying the very first pages of the Bible. We're looking at Genesis 1 through 3, and if I talked about this last week, um, Genesis 1 through 3 is so critical for us because it really deals with life's foundational questions, right? So we start digging into things like, okay, who is God and what is he like? Who are we? What is our relationship to creation that we see around us and then ultimately to our creator? Like what's the problem? What went wrong, and what's being done about it? And in Genesis one through three we're we're introduced to all of it within the first few pages of scripture. in fact i would I would argue that that Genesis one through three really is foundational to to understanding the whole story arc of, of scripture. So it's like sometimes if we're reading throughout the Bible, and we kind of don't, maybe have lost sight of, of how the story starts or where it's moving, right? It's like jumping into a trilogy on movie two, right? And there's characters that have been introduced and things that are happening, and you're like, it, it, my daughter sometimes, right? They'll be watching some Netflix series, and I'll come in and like episode five and sit down, and I'm like, oh, who's that? why did they do that? Like, what is it? And they like, and pretty quickly, like, their facial expressions indicate that they would like me to continue moving on, you know, like, because you're trying to catch up with everything that's happening from from what you've missed, and as we consider the whole story arc of Scripture, it can, it can feel a bit that way. Genesis 1 through 3 serves to give us context for all that that God is doing throughout the pages of Scripture, and our approach, as we talked about throughout this time our our desire right as we come into this this ancient culturally vastly different text right is to try to consider what does the original biblical author what does he desire to communicate to his readers right what does Moses want us to understand What, what does he want us to take away when we read this what did he want those who heard it for the very first time to know about who God is and and what he's done. As a bit of a side note here, um, I was thinking about this this week, and I know this is kind of like we're out of this practice at the as as sort of the church. But let me encourage you to bring to bring a Bible with you. And I know that many of you like you have your Bible on your phone, and but from my perspective, that just looks like you're looking at your phone when I'm up here talking. You know, um, I'm I'm kidding about that, but the. the The reason I say that is because I've started to recognize like it'll always be on the screen and and there's value in that. But I've been thinking about this whole the way this is rooted in this story. And at least there's something for me that when I am looking at these pages and I see it grounded in the context around it, that 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 provides something for me. And so let's go. Let's go a little old school here Um, and and, 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 uh, something to think about. I'll I'll post it. On our recently created Instagram, as a reminder, this week. Um, so, in days one through three, God creates the heavens and the earth. And if you were here for our introduction when John Dixon taught, he kind of he poses as sort of he creates the canvas, right? He, he creates the heavens and the earth. He separates the the sky from the water, and he brings land out. And 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 there's fruit trees, and and so he creates the the canvas. And now on days four through six, God is going to start to fill his canvas. Or again, like to use Dixon's illustration, he's going to start to paint as, as he populates that which he has created. So this is Genesis 1. We're going to pick things up in verse 14 now. This is day four. It says, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on earth, to rule the day and night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them. Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Then evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. If you were with us last week, we, we approached this first few sections, verses 1 through 13, and we used this primary question as the lens that we wanted to kind of focus on, and that was, what does Genesis 1 teach us about God? And, and today, similarly, I want to ask ourselves the question, what does Genesis 1 teach us about creation? What does it teach us about creation? And then subsequently, then what does creation teach us about God? This might seem obvious, but I think the first thing that jumps off the page to me is that we recognize when, when we see God's created order is that creation is good. Creation is good. Last summer, Sherry sent this uh, meme to me like and and the meme showed this I tried to find it because I wanted to show it to you guys but I I couldn't find it but it had this uh this guy who is standing over his like freshly mowed trimmed lawn and he's got his hands on his hips and he's just like surveying it and then underneath it said you do this and it's totally true I I like after the lawn's all done and the lines are like straight, like I will I'll stand out there and just take it in sometimes. And like this is kind of like that that imagery is sort of what I, I imagine in this expression that when God keeps looking at what he has creating and saying, It's good. This is good. He's this sense of of satisfaction in what he has created. Right, here's the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning. What does it mean when God looks at His created world and it says that He saw that it was good? I think, I think there's a number of implications that we could talk about with this, but I, I want to I focus on a couple of areas this morning. First, I think to describe creation at good is to recognize that creation exists in right relationship to its creator. Creation at, at its design, and it's, and it's before Genesis 3, right? Creation exists in right relationship to its creator. If you were here again last week, I, I briefly talked about how this description as good is a reflection of, of the character of God. So the source of it, what it, where it emanates from, has to be good in order for the, the end product to be good. Have you have you ever done the thing where like you're you like you're running a little like low on something and then you find two of them in the refrigerator? There's like, oh wow, I'm out of sour cream, but here's this other sour cream, and it's it's expired. So I'm gonna just mix the two together and see if like the am I the am I the only one who's done this? Like I'm not getting a lot of support. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it doesn't turn the new one into good. Uh, everything is is. Like If the source material is not good, Chris, you've okay. I I appreciate that, Dana. Thank you for selling him out. Like Chris and I will go to the seek therapy together. And if where you start isn't good, what it produces isn't good. So that this is important. But then, in addition to that, we begin to recognize that that creation is, as it's created, is in right relationship to the one who created it. So it's it's. In other words, it's functioning according to its design and purpose, some of which is stated overtly here, right? The, 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 he sets the, li- the lights in the expanse of the sky, and they'll serve as signs for seasons and for days and for years. So this, in Genesis 1, as we're looking at all of this unfold, there's this recognition and acknowledgement that everything is as it should be this status in creation this this goodness it's encapsulated in in the hebrew word shalom oftentimes uh, that that word gets translated into english as peace um but but shalom is is more than um the absence of conflict right? shalom is is creator in creation existing together in perfect harmony according to its design and intent. And the reason that I think this is so critical for us is because when we understand what God has created, when we understand its original design and intent, we begin to recognize what's been lost. And... and because it it could be pretty obvious to us when we look across the landscape, we're looking our own relationships, our own world, our own experience of it. It's, shalom is not frequently the word that we might use to describe our experience. everything functioning in perfect harmony. And so this as we get this picture, as this author begins to describe the created world for us, it, it it's intended to evoke in us a desire which is also important because what we discover throughout the the story arc of scripture is that this is what god is doing this is what restoration is going to look like a return to what he created in fact in the book of revelation when 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 you see the new heavens and the new earth being formed and God is, is, at this point in time of the story arc, right, this is the conclusion. He's setting everything right. Revelation 21, verse 3, it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling place is with humanity, and he will live with them. And they will be his peoples, and, and God himself will be with them and, and, and will be their God. We're not fully there yet in the, the story arc of Genesis in the first three chapters, but this is like a, a recalling of, of garden life. What things were like prior to sin messing everything up. It says he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Grief and crying and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. God is, is restoring. He's returning us to this designed, intended, created Purposeful life that he that he created for us from the very beginning to exist in with him. So from the very outset, when we when we think about that the fact that creation was good, right, it, it's intended to remind us that it's going to be good again. Like this is where he's moving the story. Secondly, creation exists it's called good because it fosters life it fosters life Andrew Parker uh is a he's a author of a book called the Genesis Enigma and he is a biologist at the University of Oxford and and um he would I think he would categorize himself as an atheist who has moved to being an agnostic so that's I that's progress I think um and, and it's interesting because as he looks at Genesis, this is what he said about it. So he's, not, again, he's obviously not looking at this from like a, a faith perspective or, or from the lens of somebody who believes necessarily in, in the God of the Bible. He says, from what I know of science, this book of Genesis is remarkably accurate. But what I cannot understand is how they knew. If ever there was a page of literature that would convince me to believe in God, it would be Genesis chapter 1. See, what, what Andrew Parker recognizes, and I think it's almost like somewhat begrudgingly, is that some of what we recognize when we watched that video is that the natural world is, is ordered and it's purposed. Like that, even that phrase that repeats it throughout there, right? According to its kind, according to its kind, there's all sorts of different debates about this. I'm not going to get into this morning, but, but at the very least, I think we can recognize that God is that this ordered mind who is unfolding all of this. And so Parker can look at this and he sees that, that there's order and that there's beauty and that there's purpose in the created world and it reveals to him something that is behind it or rather someone and where is all what what is this purpose where does it all lead it leads to life it leads to life flourishing so right this this delicate balance that we see in the universe that that is necessarily not only for life to exist and to be created, but rather for it to be sustained and to flourish. Right, this is where we could get into all kinds of scientific beauty and there'd be a million illustrations that we could use here. But it really ultimately leads us to one of two conclusions. That that either every necessary element has been randomly assembled in perfect order so that we are sort of the result of a a cosmic lottery with odds so minute that they're statistically incomprehensible, right? Which is, as I said earlier, that is in and of itself a faith statement. Or, there is one who is greater. One who acts out of, of his own nature and his own character with intentionality and design, and order, and purpose, and He does so for life. For life to flourish. And so as God paints on this canvas of His creation, He begins to fill it with life. The waters, it says, swarm with living creatures. He creates every winged creature according to its kind. He fills the sky. I literally, just before I came up here to preach, a stink bug flew over and landed on my sweater. A winged creature filled our expanse here. And then he says this in verse 22, he says, and God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply the earth. Life is created and then life is mandated to produce more life. Again, once again, this is, this is intended to reveal to us the nature of who God is, who God is and what he continues to do. Paul says this of, of Jesus in Colossians chapter one, he says, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth and the, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Creation is is good. And he continues to do this work. But then I think the author makes maybe perhaps the most overt point that would have been read and understood in, in the context of a uh, the original ancient near each culture. He says, okay, creation is good, but creation is not God. Creation is not God. Look again at, at Genesis 1. Verse 16. It said, God made the two great lights, the greater to light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as the stars, which, just pause there for one second. Like just that little, like almost in our minds, like throwaway line, right? Like four as well as the stars. I just Googled like how many stars are in the universe. And it said 200 billion trillion, which is, sounds like a number I made up when I was a kid. Um, so it's like, again, like the the scale of this. And it's just, it's, it's just a couple words in the text. And God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night and to separate light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and evening came, then morning, the fourth day. This might not immediately jump off the page to us, but what we're reading here, this is like, um, it's, it's kind of ancient Near East trash talking going on. Like Moses is, is making an express point over and against the the sort of pagan creation narratives that existed around them. Notice the way that Moses uses the term the greater light and the lesser light, instead of identifying them specifically as the sun and the moon in verse 16 there. There's Semitic words for sun and moon that, that Moses could have easily used. But Moses is making his argument against the the pagan religions of the ancient Near East culture who viewed the sun and the moon and the stars not as the creative work of God, but as God themselves. So in the ancient uh, Egyptian paganism, right? Ra is considered the king of deities who, who who not only governed the actions of the sun, but he was the physical sun itself. Instead of the the sun and the moon and the stars being objects that that are that require worship that require them to be appeased so in in those other pagan religions right there was this constant activity to sort of appease these these various gods that that things might go well for you right in contrast to that the genesis narrative right the sun and the moon and the stars they are not objects to be worshiped but rather objects who are in worship right they are reflections of God's glory they as a part of creation worship him this speaks once again to to the relationship between the created and the creator and it's a it's a matter of ownership and hear me on this it's it's a matter of ownership it's all his the the text is saying including by the way you and the implications again of this are far-reaching right it informs our role within creation to the creator when i was a, a student in college, I w- went to Moody in downtown Chicago, and my first job down there was as a valet at this kind of high-end restaurant that was close to campus. And so um, I drove, like most of my high school life, I drove my dad's like early 80s Chevy Astro van. So you can imagine when somebody pulled up in like a Ferrari that I was kind of like, okay, like, and there was this temptation that I had. Like, I was, there was some really nice cars that came in. And as you're going to move this car, there's this thought in your mind that's like, let's see what this thing can do, kind of like a Ferris Bueller type of situation here, right? And then there's this check that I think God went off in my brain that said, this is not yours. This does not belong to you, so you need to operate within it in that recognition, in that awareness. We are and we're going to dive more into this in the next couple of weeks, but we we are placed here as stewards. Think about this for a moment. How does this awareness reshape the way that we think about and interact with the stuff that we call ours? How does the fact that he owns all of it change the way that that I think about my house and and, and my car and and all my stuff, how how does the fact that he owns all of it, how does it reshape the way that I think about um, existing on this planet or the environment, which it's like even like bringing that up. It's like, I know all that gets complicated because there's various political elements. I'm I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just talking about what Genesis has implications to us here. How does it reshape the way that I think about the person sitting next to me? the neighbor across the street the the family member in my house that i'm struggling with the coworker that i try to avoid how does recognizing that all of this is his this matter of ownership how does it affect the way that we relate because additionally then it's it's a matter of ownership but it's also a matter of authority right if he made it if he owns it then he is ultimately authoritative over it. And subsequently, all, all versions of human authority are, are by definition then representative authority. It's all his. Now, let me illustrate this. Um, many of you might be familiar with the story of Job in, in the Old Testament. Um, if you're not familiar with it, just like a, a, a brief explanation here, but Job experiences an incredible loss in his life. Family, e- essentially everything. He's just left in utter devastation. And God is aware that, that this is happening. He allows it even. And, and Job is, is sitting in silence. Eventually he's got some friends that surround him. And, and at first they just kind of sit there quietly with him. And that's when they're at their best. And then they start to talk and stuff goes downhill from there. Because the only way they can explain what Job has experienced is that Job, for some reason, has got some sort of unconfessed thing in his life that, that has caused God to be angry with him. This is their worldview, right? And Job, this, is, this has got to be on you. But Job protests that. He he's actively defends himself. And it gets towards kind of like the back third of the story. Job eventually kind of almost demands his day in court. He wants to stand before Yahweh God and he wants to protest his innocence. And, and if the consequences are such that he is found guilty, then, then he wants to take that on. And, and that's when God shows up. And God begins to speak. And what's fascinating about the whole thing is that, that God does not speak to Job's circumstances at all. He only speaks to who he is. And, and look at this. This is Job... 38. This is just a tiny portion of this conversation, but I wanna, I'm going to make a point here. He says, this is God speaking to Job. And he says, can you fasten the chain of the Pleiades or loosen the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the constellations in their season and lead the bear and her cubs? So God's making the point about, about who he is. And I'm, I'm just imagining Job some... I don't know, 3,000 plus years ago. Uh, maybe, I don't know when he was, a long time ago. And, and he's hearing this and I think he understands what God is saying about the stars in the sky and all that sort of stuff. But what's fascinating here is that I've got the next image here is a, it's, it's a this is the cluster of stars uh, that's Pallades. And what's fascinating about this cluster of stars is that they share a gravitational pull. They are, they are held together and travel together in one succinct. So some have called it like a, a swarm of, of birds traveling throughout the sky. Orion, the next one, we're all, fa- you know, this is probably the most one that we're all familiar with. But Orion's belt, the three stars in Orion's belt, uh, two of them are individual stars. One is a cluster of stars. But they actually do not share gravitational attraction. In fact, Orion's belt is, over the course of time, moving away from each other. It's separating from each other. Or you might say it's loosening, right? And then the bear and the cubs, this last one. So uh, the star Arcturus, or what was commonly referred to as the bear, and this is the one that, that just sort of like blows my mind. I kind of imagine God like saying this to Job, and then he's like, Thousands of years from now, some people are going to really freak out over this. But Arcturus, again, it's, it is, and again, the way even he says the bear and the cubs. Like from, from the human eye, and you see this star in the sky, it looks like a single entity. But it's not. And what's fascinating about it is Arcturus is traveling through space. Um, it's, it's multiple times the size of our sun. And it's traveling through space at 257 miles per second. And there's no force in space, no star, nothing large enough, that has the kind of gravitational pull that can either slow it down or even change its course. Uh, the, like the sun, for instance, travels at about 12 and a half miles per second. This, so, Arcturus, the bear and its cubs are a runaway train traveling through space and god says and who can who can determine its course see the the point that i want us to understand is god is not giving job an astronomy lesson here right what he's wanting them to understand what he wants them to sit and is the question of power and authority and ownership and to me what is most compelling about the the job story as a whole is that when when job sits there in this Like again, God does not address his circumstances. He never speaks to it. He only speaks to himself. And what fascinates me is despite all the loss and the pain and the suffering of those circumstances, Job seems satisfied at the end of it. He gets to the conclusion of it. And it's like, he's enough. This is is the nature of who God is. And then lastly, and quickly we discover that creation is blessed. Creation is blessed. Verse 22, once again, God blessed them. This is God speaking over his created order. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the, earth, the birds multiply the earth. Right? God designed, his design, his blessing spoken over creation was that for all he created including you and I, to experience the prosperity, the peace, the fulfillment, that Hebrew word that we talked about earlier of shalom. Like his desire for us is to experience that as His creation and ultimately in His creation. And the thing is, even on this side of, of Genesis 3, even when sin came in and it marred His desire for creation, we still can experience this blessing. Right? when creation when creation moves us to a place of wonder, we experience this blessing. When you and I are are acting in when we're caring for, intending, when we, when we're living as stewards of his creation, we experience his blessing. Anytime that creation invites us or, or causes us to know him more anytime that we're given the opportunity to discover again how much he loves us any taste that you and I get of this shalom this goodness we experience his blessing it's a creation it serves the creator creation reminds us that we belong to him And it humbles us as we perceive the size and the scale of of that which he formed. And we consider the one who is capable to be the creator. And once again, I want to conclude today. I want to read a psalm. Would you stand with me? This is kind of going to be our our segue from, from this because David is asking some of these very same questions and he wants to understand How do we as humans relate to all of this? Let me read this over you. Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. And when I observe the heavens, the work of your fingers, the the moon and the stars which you set in place. What is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. David is feeling the humility. We're going to dive into that, that next week. Would you worship with us? Amen. I think if, if all we walk away from today is, is a heart level expression to just say, God, you're amazing. Then I, then I think we have rightly entered into to Genesis chapter 1 together. If we can pray with you today, our, our prayer team is available. It's a privilege to do that. If you're new with us, uh, I invite you to swing by our welcome desk after the service. We'd love to, to meet you, um, to answer any questions you may have. If you came prepared to give today, our generosity boxes are by our two side doors as you leave. Uh, thank you for partnering with us in the work here. Now receive this morning's benediction. Go now in the name of our creator God, who is good. What he created is good. He created us to be in right relationship with him. And he makes a way in his son, Jesus Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen.